Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Anne Filippi, founder of The New Health Club. If you want to know about psychedelics as new mental health tools, you came to the right place. I talk to innovators, thought leaders and disruptors, creating the future of mental health and mental wellness. And we think that the future is already here. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club Show. I'm not your typical army brat, but I have lots of army related topics in my family. My dad was in the military police, working with US soldiers who went to Vietnam and then never came back. He rarely talked about it. My grandfather was in the Second World War, talking to me and only me often about his time in Russia and the war. Until recently, I never thought about their possible PTSD and memories. I think we're just beginning to understand these things and how they also affected ourselves. But when I read about the veteran Navy SEAL advocates for psychedelic-assisted therapy called Marcus Capone, I had to think about them. But what was this all about, what Marcus Capone was doing? A Navy SEAL and psychedelics? I kept reading and quickly Amber Capone, Marcus' wife, was introduced in the articles. Amber wanted to save her husband from PTSD and, yes, suicide. Amber made it possible now for veterans to get in touch with psychedelic-assisted therapy by founding the organization VETS that she's running now with her husband, Marcus. Amber and Marcus' mission today is to end the veteran suicide epidemic by providing resources, research, and advocacy for U.S. military veterans seeking psychedelic-assisted therapies. VETS helps veterans and their spouses access treatment with psychedelic therapies, including ibogaine, Iboga, ketamine, psilocybin, MDMA, 5-MeO-DMT and ayahuasca. So far in the US, but their model could work on a global level. The story of Marcus and Amber is a pretty strong one. When Marcus was medically retired after 13 years and multiple combat deployments as a US Navy SEAL, Marcus and Amber thought that life would return to normal. Instead, their struggle had just begun. Marcus was experiencing an escalating myriad of challenges, including depression, isolation, cognitive impairment, excessive alcohol use, headaches, insomnia, and impulsivity. Marcus was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, so-called PTSD, but instinctively Amber felt there was more to be discovered. After learning about the effects of blast waves, concussive and subconcussive brain injuries, everything started to become clear. Marcus' military career as an explosives expert, combined with his prior years of contact sports, had left him with the invisible wounds of traumatic brain injury, TBI, a condition that has significant overlap with PTSD and is often not properly diagnosed. So here they are on the podcast talking about their journey. I talked to Amber and Marcus about Marcus' life with Ambien, Adderall and antidepressants, which was nothing but an utter nightmare for himself and his family. We talk about his trip to Mexico on Veterans Day to undergo an ibogaine treatment and reconnect with his family and himself. We talk about how Amber decided to help others after her husband had come back to life after his treatment and that still was just the beginning of his own journey and not a panacea for everything. How veterans and athletes are supporting the psychedelic renaissance by sharing their stories openly right now is very impressive and very helpful to bring out the message that the psychedelic renaissance is here and also to support veterans. Enjoy the show. 
Thank you for being on the show, Amber and Marcus Capone. I mean, there's a lot of articles about, you know, you're, you're constantly in the media, I feel. So I would like to start with the question, how has your life changed in the last three to four months? Three to four months. Oh, gosh. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having us on and thank you for your flexibility and scheduling. Um, of course. Our schedule in the last three or four months has absolutely become bananas. Um, the increased awareness that we've worked for the last three or four years to raise is certainly hitting a fever pitch now. And so the last three or four months for us, um, we had an article come out in Time magazine. We've had some really incredible legislative victories, primarily in Texas. And all of this has culminated in an uptick in interest and um you know, need from the veteran community, interest from other states, researchers, clinics, clinicians reaching out. It's a lot. Okay. And Marcus, how is this for you? So how do you feel right now as basically um, kind of a spokesperson for this? Because I remember, I think Lars Wilde told me the first time about you. Uh, I think like six months ago that you would talk in front of the UN, but I think then I think because of COVID, this might not have happened or something, but now you're kind of the face for this kind of very specific treatment. And especially for veterans who are basically all over the world, I mean, um, probably getting in touch with you requesting. So how does it feel for you to have that position kind of now? Yeah, I think we're just getting started. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't really look at it that way. I really just look at it as how can I support Amber run vets every day? Um, you know, how can we make it better? How can we support the individuals that are, you know, really reaching out to us? The individuals who reach out to us are, you know, they've tried just about everything else that has been offered to them uh, in terms of, uh, you know, things that would help for depression or anxiety, or if they had, you know, mild traumatic brain injuries and, They've gone to brain clinics and they're not getting answers. And so, you know, I feel like we're the kind of the last call. Um, I feel that uh, the other veterans, you know, go down the path of that, you know, Western medicine approach for veterans, either the uh, Veterans Administration. And although, you know, I think deep down at an individual level, I think they really care at, these, you know, at these places. And I really think they... They try to help, but I don't think that they're very um, progressive in in terms of looking at you know what else is out there, what's really working, um, what haven't they tried, and I think that's where Amber and I come in with that. And I think that um, what I was you know lucky enough to find you know, almost four years ago now is is um, is really exciting to spread to you know, all the others who, who really need it. Um, how many, let's say worldwide organizations have reached out to you that have a similar, I mean, topic. And, um, I mean, obviously this is a worldwide topic that goes for every country with an army. Right. I mean, and, uh, everybody, every country also probably has the same, I think Amber, I told you last time we talked on the phone quickly, There's a German documentary about a German uh, department in the German army uh, with the doctor who is responsible for PTSD. And they have two soldiers who've been to Afghanistan and they always keep coming back to the same results, which means they don't have any results. And you see them going to Canada to this kind of um, almost like a veteran Olympic Games thing where Prince Harry is also involved But I mean, they don't really get better. So you would think that a department like that would actually reach out to you guys um, since you mean you become kind of more present now to inquire what what could be possible to do. So I'm, I'm wondering, yeah, are other armies reaching out to you? And, and if so, what can you talk about what armies that would be or what countries? Um, initially, I thought you meant what other countries have we been in contact with in terms of you know, research initiatives or global conferences or things like that. And there have actually been several. Um, we were set to speak in Israel, and that was unfortunately um, canceled due to COVID. We are 
in regular contact with the Beckley Foundation and Amanda Fielding um, in the UK. And so I feel like uh, other, you know, armies or military units have not reached out. And that's really not even the case in the United States. So while these other research initiatives and conferences and cutting edge, you know, leading charges in the psychedelic space, the more bureaucratic regiments are not there yet. I don't know if I adequately answered that, but. um, Mm -hmm. No, it's interesting. I mean, you would think that now, and especially in the States, there's so there's even more in the media now about psychedelic treatments. But um, so it. It's kind of interesting to me that no other army would actually look into this already. Kind of, that's just just uh, just an interesting thing. You know, and I'm having initial discussions with some uh, individuals in the Ukraine. Um, okay, wow. Ukraine, of course, has been um, you know fighting the Russians um, for the last uh, seven years. Uh, I believe the death toll is up near 15,000. And so there's a lot of, you know, mental health issues going on in the Ukraine. Um, so we're, we're starting initial discussions. Um, they actually do have Ibogaine clinics that are legal uh, in the Ukraine. Wow. And okay. uh, the Ministry of Defense, um, the health minister, and several of them are, are initially interested to see potentially if there's some type of partnership um, where we can provide, you know, some of the support that we do um, and assist, uh, you know, their veterans. But again, these are just early stage conversations, but they're very interested in what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine. Um, but let's come quickly back to your kind of personal story, because I feel this is such an important story that will actually be so understandable for so many people. And, um, but I mean, what I find very interesting with the situation and you can happy to, if you get into your personal story, how you got into this whole topic in in a minute, but I find it super interesting that you often have the situation where one person is suffering from PTSD and the other is not, and how you actually manage to work around this so that you basically, um, kind of met at a certain point again, where you knew, okay, one person, Marcus, in that case, you has to do something. So I'm happy if you would like to share your story, how you got into this, into the whole topic of psychedelic healing therapy. Sure. Um, I would say prior to my transition out of the military. So while I was still active duty, um, I started having symptoms of you know, depression and anxiety, um, and some mild, uh, TBI related, um, instances. And so Amber and I started looking into, uh, you know, different brain clinics. And by the time I had transitioned out and fast forward three years, I'd already been to five separate brain clinics and I had been um, prescribed a host of medications, SSRIs, you know, Adderall, Provigil, Nuvigil, uh, Ambien. Uh, there's a few others. I believe at one point I was on 10, you know, in all different doses. 10. Wow. You know, and it, it got really frustrating, man, because I didn't feel like I was getting any better. Um, you know, and if I did have a few days of, you want to call it like lightness, um, it would be followed by days of, of darkness and depression, uh, you know, where I didn't want to answer my phone or talk to anyone or get out of bed. And, you know, it obviously affects everybody and everything, uh, you know, my family, my friends, my, my work. Um, and so, you know, not finding answers is, you know, you get that feeling of hopelessness. Um, I talked to too many psychologists and therapists to even tell you, or even know what the number is to this to date. Um, but uh, thank goodness, you know, Amber uh, had been working in the backgrounds because she felt like she was going to solve this problem. And she had found, you know, through our network that another SEAL had received Ibogaine therapy outside the U.S. and had 
completely, you know, did a 180, changed his life. Mm-hmm. It sounded like he wasn't in a good place and he got to a good place. And so it really piqued Amber's interest and she looked into it more and kind of worked behind the scenes with a doctor. Uh, it took me about a year to commit because I think like everybody else, you know, I didn't grow up around drugs or, you know, I was, you know, being fed the, you know, the, it was during the war on drugs and all drugs are bad. And so to me, this was a bit crazy because what did I know from psychedelics? And again, this is four years ago. So I think it was even before Michael Pollan's book. So the oh, subject wow. okay, was still yeah. a bit taboo. And, you know, I was at the point in where I would try anything at that time because I just wanted to get better. And so I committed, went outside the U.S., went to a retreat, Ibogaine and 5-MeO uh, protocol. And, uh, you know, within a weekend, as you know, or as you've read or as you've heard, um, life changing, you know, and I think what I want to get across is not we, we don't joke, but we, we call it it's like a tourniquet. So we, if you're in that, you know, you're in that that phase of where you're just you're bleeding out and nothing's stopping the, the blood, the tourniquet just, you know, stops it immediately. And I think I feel like that's what psychedelic therapy does. It's like an immediate shutoff switch to any real darkness or pain or or trouble, anxiety you're having. And it allows you to, you know, rebuild, you know, new good habits. And, um, you know, it's not a panacea. And I think that message really has to be driven home to people that don't expect like the Western medicine approach to take a pill and all your problems go away. But it doesn't work like that. This is just, this is a fast forward. This, um, this really uh, pulls out everything that you need to see immediately. And you deal with a lot of the stuff that you, you may have to go talk to a therapist for 10 or 15 years and that's wrapped up in a weekend. So you need to take that information, it's knowledge, and now you need to go forward and get yourself better. And so that's what we try to really hit home is that the integration piece after you take the psychedelic is 90%, 95% of the healing. If you don't do that, you'll go right back potentially and slip right back to the old habits. And so um, I work really hard on a regular basis to make sure I don't slip back. Okay. And before we come to that and also what you're doing now, actually, so I'm curious, like if you talk to psychologists and you talk to many, as a lot of people who have done before they entered psychedelic therapy, including myself, when you talked to your psychologist before, what do they actually tell you if you make it very clear that these medications don't help you or, or in some cases make it even worse actually for you. Are you talking about the, the antidepressants? Yeah. Like when you said, like you talk to a, a lot of psychologists, I'm pretty sure also related to the army or like even maybe even in the time when you were still a SEAL. So, and then what are the answers that they come up with? If you say, well, I mean, I'm getting kind of worse and I'm on 10 medications and it doesn't help. You know, what I'm finding out again at the ground level, at the individual level, I believe they all understand this. But I feel it's what they've been taught in schools. And so they just prescribe what they know and what they've been taught. And I do feel that they want us to get better. I feel sometimes they just don't have the answers or maybe they don't have the tools. And so they use the tools that they have, which are SSRIs, SNRIs, um, you know, and other related protocols um, that, you know, they're giving out to individuals with some of these same issues, but they're very quick to adjust your medication. So if I say Effexor 300 milligrams is not working for me, they'll immediately just change the dose to, you know, 350 or 400 or 500, or they'll, you know, take you off of effects and put you on Lexapro or, you know, Cymbalta. There are many drugs that are very similar. And so they, you know, kind of move you around this whole different slew of medications that, you know, hopefully one of them will work. And they absolutely work for some people. But there's a third of the population, according to research, that it doesn't work for. That's the, you know, that's where treatment-resistant depression comes in is that 
you know, it's treatment resistant. So none of these, none of these approaches are working. So what do you do? Um, Mm. I've also noticed Mm. that talking to these psychologists about, uh, psychedelic assisted therapy, Mm. most of them are very open to learning. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. They don't downplay it. They don't talk bad about it. They've either read or they've started to read some published work. And so they're very interested because at the end of the day, it's only going to help their practice. So their job is to get someone better. And so if they can find something Mm. to make their patient better, well, then, you know, then they feel better, right? Because that's why they're in this job to begin with. Most therapists are doing it for the love of, of helping others. And so I have found that most of them are very receptive to um, kind of this new renaissance of therapy. Okay. So Amber, let's, let's bring you back. Um, so maybe you can just start to talk a little bit about when you really started to realize, okay, this is not gonna go anywhere with Marcus and you would have to look into other options. So how did you get started or where did you research or how did you find out about Ibogaine? Um, You know, for the longest time, I think that we were just feeling like this was normal and to be expected. And, you know, unfortunately, we're not uh, unique in having experienced these challenges. A lot of veteran families, military families are experiencing the same exact challenges. And so when you're comparing yourself to your peer group, it seems normal. Yet the longer we were in the civilian world, I began to realize this is not normal. And with each passing year, the struggle seemed to get more pronounced. And um, I don't know. I just thought, you know, we've been good soldiers for a very long time. Marcus was very resistant to medication for his entire career as an active duty soldier. And yet upon his exit from the military, he was prescribed a multitude of pharmaceuticals and He started taking them regularly like a good soldier. It really wasn't making any marked change for the better. In fact, some things were becoming worse. More medications were prescribed. I felt like that wasn't working for sure. And then uh, one of his former teammates took his life and the brain autopsy postmortem revealed that he was dealing with injuries sustained from blast exposure in concussive and subconcussive events, so traumatic brain injury, mild traumatic brain injury. Marcus had all of the same history, all of the same symptoms. And so I began to realize that all of these medications that he was being put on were for purely psychological conditions and they were masking everything. You know, it's never going to get to the root cause. It's just masking. And in some cases, like, you know, Marcus with a 28-year history of head trauma, there was a physiological component that was being completely treated as a psychological condition. And so that's when we pivoted and started doing the brain clinics. And you think that if you're having a brain thing, you know, a brain problem, that the brain clinics would be a great place to go. They're really great for diagnostics. They're not so great for actually providing long-term solutions. And so he was given all of the things that were wrong Nothing that was helping make it right. And he was becoming more and more disheartened and discontent on the track that he was taking. Um, I knew that time was running out for him, for us. You could feel it. It was just, he was becoming more defeated with each failed attempt. And so I thought, well, we're really going to have to think out of the box here because I want to know that I've tried everything, whether you know, we no longer can stay married or, you know, something, Mm. something terrible happens to him. I want to know that I've tried everything and I really wanted him to get better too. I really, really wanted this to end well. And so a friend had shared his experience with me his, his spouse actually had shared his experience with me. And then I began talking with him. He was also a fellow SEAL and, you know, Marcus could have read as much research as it you know exists on psychedelic therapies, but hearing it from a friend was really what he needed to make the decision to pursue the psychedelic mm-hmm. retreat. And so he actually, I, I brought this up to him prior to all the brain clinics. I knew that our friend had had this experience. He didn't want to hear about it. It was relatively new at that time, even for the friend. And so he was like, you know, that's crazy. I'm not doing drugs. I'm not leaving the country. I'm not, that's, that's nuts. 
Well, a year goes by and he's done all these brain clinics to no avail. And then I reapproached him about it. And at that point he agreed to go. So yeah, it was just in pure desperation and it was way outside of my comfort zone too, completely outside of my comfort zone. Um, but we definitely took the leap of faith. And when did you decide then to really, I mean, you could say it's like your life mission, right? I mean, I don't think this will become any less <laughs> engagement or work. So, I mean, um, and it's almost like you're becoming almost like a, let's say something like maps for veterans, right? In, in, you could, you could say that. So when, when did you guys make the decision to really fully engage in this? It definitely feels like that. It's such an honor, you know, to even be, uh, lumped into any category with maps. So <clears throat> thank you for that. But I certainly feel like Marcus knew immediately that he wanted to pay this forward. What we thought would just be our friends. He asked, um, the other seal or the doctor or something like, well, how many other guys have been through this? And he was like the second and he couldn't believe that. And so the day after his treatment, he said to me, this is exactly what, you know, others need in our community. And mm -hmm. we ironically were contacted by what would become our first donor the following month. She wanted to give to a veterans organization, but she wanted to know where her dollars went. She didn't want to go, you know, to paying overhead and salaries and, you know, a bunch of fluff. And so Marcus said, I really don't know what charity to recommend, but a month ago, uh, I had the most radical life-saving, life-altering treatment. And you could support one of my friends who also needs it. And she was totally on board. And so that's how this was born with his desire to give back. And our community is just like that. We take care of one another. We love and respect one another and we want to help. And so that desire coupled with this random outreach um, is what sparked the grassroots effort. Mm -hmm. That initial grassroots effort was, um, you know, we were very afraid to put our names on this. It's still, it was still so stigmatized and so unknown and honestly sure. weird for us. <laughs> You're like, this is so weird. And we didn't <laughs> want to be compared, you know, to like snake oil salesmen. We didn't know if it would work for everyone or if it would last even for Marcus. And so the goal was for 12 others to receive the same sort of healing and for 12 months to go by. And once that 12-12 goal was accomplished, then we would get serious about taking it more mainstream. And at mm -hmm. the 11 and a half month mark of this period, one of my closest friend's husbands took his life. And I had such extreme conviction um, sitting in his funeral that we had to get out of our comfort zone and our pride and our um, concerns about our reputation and this being weird. That totally went out the window because if this could happen to yeah. a guy like him, it could happen to anybody. And it was terrifying. Mm. So we were just very convicted. The next goal that I set was for 100 other special operations veterans to receive this same lifeline and to do IRB research on the, the outcomes. And so we started that mission. And at about, I don't know, we were about 70, 80 veterans in and uh the results were looking really good and so at that point we abandoned the grassroots effort and moved over to uh the dedicated u.s you know 501c3 which is now vets we formed vets okay. officially in 2019 even though our mission began in 2017 and um Yeah, we've just been <laughs> pounding the pavement since. So to date, we've supported over 350 other veterans who've had to leave the United States to seek psychedelic um, healing. Wow, that's that's a big number. For, I mean, it's kind of a short time for that. So, But uh, Marcus, I was wondering, could you talk about when you got into the, the ibogaine treatment, can you talk about, if you want to, what you've seen and how this was related to your 
let's say combat experience or army experience, because this is becoming in my perception such a big topic because for example, my dad was in the military police in, in Germany. I mean, he was a German and he was always dealing with the guys going to Vietnam and landing in Germany in Ida Oberstein and then going to Vietnam. And he met so many people that never came back from Vietnam. But this whole topic of just how this is influencing um, a person in the army, I feel is just coming to the surface. Also, thanks to you guys um, very, very slowly. And um, I was wondering if you could share what you've seen in your Ibogaine journey or in your psychedelic trip, you could say. Yeah. Um, everybody's journey is different. And, and Ibogo, Ibogaine is such a, it's such a wild, um, you know, plant medicine. And, you know, after everything I read, it sounds like it's one of the toughest. Mm. And what Ibogaine shows you, um, people may not be ready for the flood of information uh, that you're going to receive in 12 hour journey on Ibogaine, you know, maybe twice as long on Iboga. Um, you see just about everything though. You see images of your childhood. Um, you know, your, your life kind of plays out in front of you, uh, things that you haven't, uh, spoken about or thought about for years that have been parked, you know, somewhere in your subconscious, um, you know, gets brought to the front. And, um, most of the time it is the thoughts that are weighing heavy on you mm. because again, this is your mind. And so it's your mind showing you the things that, you know, your mind wants you to see. And, uh, so for me, you know, I saw some, some childhood, I want to call them activities. I saw some years that I was in the military. I saw some friends that had passed, um, that I, you know, that I spoke to, I saw some very dark and uh, demonic type of, of story play out uh, for some of the more intense portion of my, uh, my first I began experience. And I think that was just, you know, a lot of the chatter in my mind uh, and the thoughts, probably the, the bad thoughts that I had just from over the years. And, um, you know, I faced those thoughts or during the trip, it was, you know, it was, it was really like reality. I mean, it, it, you, you do feel like you're there. Um, but that's why I came out of that experience. I think so powerful because I felt like all those burdens or maybe, you know, those, uh, experiences that may have been somewhat weighing me down where I really didn't know about it. Um, really kind of just lifted a, a heavy weight or heavy burden, I feel like, that I was carrying. One of the doctors likened it to, you know, wearing a backpack full of weights or, or rocks, heavy rocks. And as you go through your experience, you face all these different uh, things, traumas, not traumas, but it, it's just, it's, it's tossing the rocks out of your bag. And so as my experience went on, I just felt lighter and by you know, by the morning when I woke up, I felt like this, this massive weight had just been lifted, you know, off my shoulders. You know, it was just, I was just ready to like spread the word because I know my experience is just one of, you know, thousands or millions of others. And if they could experience the same thing I did and they could have, you know, that weight lifted off of their shoulders, well, you know, maybe they could, uh, they could then live a, you know, live a better life than what, whatever yeah. they were current, currently and, and, going through. So, and did you actually, I mean, which you often have in trips, did you actually communicate or talk to, to friends that you, or like, yeah, colleagues, how you want to call it? Because that's always, yeah. If you could talk about that, that's super interesting to me always. Yeah. You know, and I, I wish I had a book and I wish I wrote down uh, everything that yeah. I experienced, <laughs> but you know, I absolutely had visions of friends that I served with that we had lost from the time I served. Um, I don't remember, you know, exact conversations. I do remember, you know, faces and smiling and, you know, glimpses of, of seeing them, you know, in, in real life. My experience though, I tell people was a bit, it was a bit all over the place. Mm -hmm. Some people goes in chronological order. Uh, mine, I feel was kind of just, you know, thrown at me from all different angles. And, 
sometimes I feel like that's how my brain works in, in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of chatter and I wish sometimes that you know, my brain chatter would just slow down. Um, you know, I work on that through meditation and through yoga and some other things. And it's, it's definitely gotten better. Um, but that's really how my Ibogaine experience was where, you know, we just, I had a lot of different random, you know, movie clips basically. Yeah. Okay. Playing out in front of me for hours, you know, and some of them were scary and some of them were very odd and questioning. And then some of them were uplifting and most of the uplifting was, you know, around Amber and Caden and Maggie. Mm. And so those were fun, right? Those were parts of the experience that were very uplifting and happy. And I almost felt like it was a break. Like they were mm-hmm. there for, to give me a bit of like, uh, just as a pause. Mm-hmm. And then, then I would go back into like the dark kind of story that I began, you know, is, is showing you. And, um, mm-hmm. so it was, it was a, it was a wild ride. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Just purely life-changing. Speaking of like life-changing experiences, I mean, Amber, like, I'm really curious if also like Vietnam veterans are contacting you. I mean, I think I remember like somebody told me, maybe it was Rick, even Rick Doblin, that I think the regular veteran organizations would actually give veterans money to just kind of keep on living because some of them can't work anymore. And then they have the regular treatments like therapy and, and, um, SSRIs. And I lived in California for so long and I've seen all these guys in the streets with the sign Vietnam veteran. And until I've seen them, I've never thought that that was actually a thing that people were not able to maybe sustain a job or uh, even create a family after they came back from Vietnam. So I mean, how is this playing out in terms of these also probably really big amount of Vietnam veterans in, in the field? That's a really great point. Um, we have supported a couple of Vietnam veterans. Uh, our mission is primarily focused on post 9-11 veterans. And so we do have a special circumstance clause in our eligibility criteria. But for the most part, um, we're dealing with post 9-11 But to your point about the Vietnam veterans, the VA exists in the United States to offer health care to anyone that's ever served the country. And that is an admirable and highly complicated feat. They do the best that they can, but there is so much bureaucratic red tape. And so while any veteran can go into the VA and receive care, it's not necessarily always expedient. And to Marcus's earlier point, many times it's just a purely pharmaceutical approach. And so mm-hmm. we feel like pharmaceuticals are good in some cases and in others, and it just really masks the problem and never gets to the root of it. And without doing that, life continues to spiral. Um, you know, purpose is gone. Families fall apart. You know, before you know it, some veterans are living on the streets. And it's that is so unacceptable for a country like like ours. We haven't even figured out the best way to care for Vietnam era vets. So the tidal wave that's approaching and the care of needs that will exist for post 9-11 vets right now is just tip of the iceberg. It is terrifying to think that We don't have a good answer for Vietnam era. How are we supposed to serve our veterans who've been in sustained combat for an unprecedented 20 years? This year marks the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and almost two decades now of sustained combat. In the United States, you have to do 20 years to be eligible for a military retirement and a pension. So Marcus's... Um, some of his fellow SEAL trainees, if you will, are still fighting and still deploying today, 20 years later. They're only in their mid-40s. So how do we, as a country, provide uh, care and support and an opportunity for these young men still to live a thriving and productive second half of their lives and not end up on the streets? 
We know that the current treatments aren't working. We know that we have failed other areas of soldiers. Um, and so we've got to have new tools in the toolbox to fight this approaching tidal wave. And I think psychedelics are a really great start. Yeah. Also, I think that, um, for example, if guys like you, Marcus and Amber, and also somebody like John Lubecki, if people from the army come forward, a lot of people, and I'm sure not only in Europe, will think, oh, this guy or those guys were in the army. So they're not some left-wing student who's getting high on psychedelics. And even like him, for example, John Lubecki's appearance in, in the Scoop show um, about psychedelics, the episode in, in the, the Goop Lab, where he talks about kind of being rather, yeah, I mean, not really Republican, but in a conservative party that actually helps to bring the topic way more forward. So what is your impression on um, that it actually also, like what you guys are doing and vets and everything, is that also kind of convincing rather conservative people or maybe even Republicans to just really get into the topic instead of just saying, oh, it's just a, a fun liberal California thing to do? <laughs> I think that we've absolutely seen the tide turning in that regard. Um, in full disclosure, I grew up in a very conservative Christian household. I still consider myself conservative, although much more middle of the aisle um, than ever before. But certainly, you know, tend to err on the more conservative side. I am so excited about the unity that we're seeing around these therapies. I feel like we have been blessed by garnering support from both sides of the aisle, whether it's from those that are supportive of psychedelic science and really feel like the veteran voice is important in highlighting the promise here, or through, um, you know, on the other side where it's just patriotic, you know, red, white, and blue, whatever helps our veterans. Mm -hmm. We're really creating a, a very unique bridge between both sides. And so I feel like when you do have the right voices, the credible voices who've done so much for this country, unapologetically and bravely stand up and say, these therapies are working, they're saving lives. And we owe it to our veterans to find new tools and give them, you know, not just mask their symptoms and keep them, you know, zombified and on medications for the rest of their lives, but give them the tools to deal with the trauma, to help mitigate the signs and, or the symptoms of traumatic brain injury and live a productive and meaningful life. When the right voices get behind that narrative And everyone unites around common sense. Change starts to happen. And that is exactly what we saw in Texas. We live in Texas. Texas is a very conservative state, mm -hmm. a very patriotic yeah. state. And so this legislation was introduced by a relatively new representative from a district in the very, very southern region of Texas. And it wasn't gaining much traction And I knew that our former governor, Rick Perry, was supportive of our efforts. And so I reached out to him and said, what do you think of this bill that's been introduced? We're being asked to endorse it. And I don't want to alienate your support because it's, you know, from the political or opposite political party. And he said, well, if it's good legislation, I'll endorse it. And he did his due diligence and he came back and he said, this is a good man and this is good legislation. I don't care about the politics. We need to help our veterans. And so that we, we just got behind it in the most ferocious way. And the bill passed almost unanimously. It did pass unanimously through two committees. The legislative process is, you know, quite arduous, but unanimous through two committees, almost unanimous on the floors of both the House and the Senate. And that has really given us hope that whenever you have a fair legislation and the right voices and a spirit of unity that we can really bring about healing, not only for our veterans, but for some of the divides in our country. I'm very excited about that. Mm. Maybe the two of you, what are the 
plans for next year for vets? What are the big topics that you guys want to address and tackle? Legislation, more, more, more legislation. Okay. We are only one organization. And as we do more podcasts and get more airtime and share our story, it creates more of a demand. We already are at max capacity. You know, the funding is always an issue. The scalability and growth is always an issue. There are veterans that are truly on the brink who've had recent suicide attempts or having active suicidal ideation. We feel a responsibility to help those people. We feel a responsibility to help our community, but we feel an equal responsibility to help all veterans. And the best way we can do that is to advocate for change to veteran health care for rescheduling in the United States, for an opportunity to bring these therapies in, even under research, so that our veterans and eventually, hopefully all citizens in the United States can heal within the borders of this country. And they don't have to leave it. One of the most staggering aspects of our mission is that we are sending our veterans outside of the borders of this country to go get help and healing from the invisible wounds that they endured during their time in service. And um, hmm. we just can't continue to shoulder this alone. We've got to have laws changed in the United States. So we've got our sights set on that. We'll never stop helping veterans. We'll never stop adding to the growing body of the overwhelming scientific research that proves these therapies are superior and effective in ways that nothing else can even come close to. And um, we take it, you know, as a, as a real responsibility of ours to now find a way to help all veterans and all citizens experience this healing if they choose. Wow. Like a party program. <laughs> I was like, but uh, so, I mean, honestly, I'm just thinking how we can arrange that you guys can talk to the German army. I know this guy, this doctor is a little stubborn to get in touch with, but at one point we figure it out. So I think it would be super interesting. I mean, of course, this can be done virtually, I guess, that you guys maybe might be able to speak to the German Afghanistan veterans. And I mean, that documentation that I kept talking about um, showed me that there's obviously there are tons of people, ex-veterans here in their 30s, 40s, that um, are not making any progress at all. But I mean, we're going to look into this here in, in Berlin because the, their base is also here in Berlin from the government. Um, so that might be a good idea if you guys just talk to them about your work. And speaking of, if somebody in another country would like to start this, what is the important thing to look into if you want to start, let's say, VETS? I mean, Israel, you're already in there, but uh, VETS, Russia, or <laughs> VETS, France. And, and I think in England, there's already kind of an engagement, if I'm not mistaken, also with maps. So what is what is the most important thing to start an initiative like you guys did? I would say from practicality standpoint, the most important thing is the legal mm -hmm. due diligence. We are well equipped with attorneys in the United States that have advised us on everything from the Controlled Substances Act to nonprofit law. Uh, I know that a lot of well-intended folks would just think that you can go out and start this and do this. And it's very tricky to raise donor dollars for a charitable cause mm -hmm. when the cause itself is illegal in the United yeah. States. So I think that the most important thing is knowing drug law and knowing nonprofit law and you know working diligently with a team of attorneys And not trying to, you know, Google or research yourself, but really um, setting it up properly because protecting donors and protecting the organization is truly the most important part of being able to help veterans. Um, mm -hmm. I would say if anyone is interested in other chapters, you know, definitely reach out to us. It's something that we have considered and um, will continue considering. We feel like we want to be really good at our core mission before expansion. And right mm -hmm. now, you know, that has looked like setting up our firm foundation, dialing in our programming and growth and scalability within the United States. Um, but we know that there are other branches of service that are 
and other, you know, in other countries that are suffering just the same. And Marcus can probably speak to some of the other, you know, international counterparts that he's worked with and spoken with, but the need exists. And if we can be global advocates, we would absolutely be honored to do it. Regardless of where someone's location is, these therapies will work. Yeah. And I think we have the infrastructure in place now, as Amber mentioned, you know, we did all the, if you call the the difficult work, you know, like every other startup, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> yeah, the hard part so is getting it off the ground, right? And doing all the, yeah. you know, and spending all the money on legal fees. And, you know, we did all that work. So now if other countries or other units, like I said, you know, prior, we're starting initial conversations with the Ukraine. Uh, I speak to a former veteran that I worked with 15 years ago in Denmark. We have a great, I'm going to say network into the German military through our U.S. counterparts, um, you know, right there in Stuttgart and some of the other areas. Oh, okay, cool. Good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I spent some time in Stuttgart myself, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I don't think that would be an issue if there's individuals that are out there that are willing to, you know, take the next step and um, make that commitment, you know, we can help them on the backside, you know, through through the processes that Amber and the team have created some of the technology that we're using, um, you know, we've just built uh, and launched an education portal through our website, which we've been told now by several people that is just, you know, phenomenal that how well put together it's like, Mm -hmm. it takes you through from, you know, psychedelic therapy 101, you know, what is a plant medicine to Mm -hmm. integration and everything in between the history and how everything has been put together. So, you know, there's a lot of information there and we'd be very willing to, you know, partner with anyone across the globe who's willing to, to help. Okay. And speaking of when you just said integration, I was wondering, can you talk about your kind of, let's say your integration life? Like when you came out of the treatment, how did you put together your, let's say new life? Because I feel that, that most people, don't really have an idea. So, I mean, now they heard, okay, well, there's this experience where I go through everything, but, and then they hear, okay, but you need integration. That's super important. But how does it actually in your case look like, and how did you put it together? Yeah. Well, first off, I believe we have one of the best integration teams or coaching teams uh, based right out of Southern California. So individuals that uh, we are going to fund for treatment, they get connected to a integration coach. And that integration coach takes them through several therapy sessions prior to their experience or their trip. And then uh, many times they're also sitting with them throughout their experience. And then uh, for weeks after, uh, your therapy coach, your integration coach is doing weekly calls with you and helping you untangle uh, some of the, you know, some of the stuff that you just experienced. And so, you know, we're lucky enough to have that built into the program. And so, I mean, I still speak to my coach once a week mm-hmm. because there's still stuff that I'm unpacking after all these years. And, uh, you know, I meditate regularly. I think it's important meditation, uh, you know, through research that we now know, um, it helps you quiet the mind. It helps you gather your thoughts. It helps you clear all the garbage out that uh, is coming in on a regular basis um, helps you be more centered, grounded, helps you, you know, have a higher level of consciousness, be more aware. So, you know, I can't say enough good things about it. Um, when I meditate, you know, I come out of it just so, just so refreshed and ready to, to tackle anything I need to. And so I feel it's just super important to incorporate some of these practices after your, your psychedelic experience. Many individuals think that again, what we spoke earlier, that they take a pill and walk away. It doesn't work like Mm -hmm. that. This is just a, um, the psychedelic is just, it's just opening you up to all the things that you need to see. Instead of experiencing that for the next 10 years, you're experiencing it in, you know, a night or a weekend. And so you really need that integration coach to help you work through uh, the things that you experienced. The meditation just kind of helps you continue on your path to healing. Um, individuals go back to, you know, working out again, running, swimming, surfing, yeah. uh, weight training, eating right, 
you know, cutting down on alcohol. Like these are the things that when you're 20 years old, they don't affect you. But as you get older, they affect you more than you did when you were younger. And so these are the things you really got to, you have to um, uh, be cognizant of and work through as, mm-hmm. as you get older. And those are the things that I have done on a regular basis when I am running around too hard or I'm forgetting to do things is when I slip back and have, you know, periodic relapses. Um, so for me, if I can stay as consistent as possible with these interventions, then everything is good. Yeah, <laughs> true. What is your uh, little advice for people who want to get into meditation and can't? <laughs> there are some good apps out there, Calm, and uh, there's a there's a few others. Yeah, I did a meditation course. It was a two-week course. It really just, like everything else, you know, crawl, walk, then run. This had you meditating for five minutes in the first week, mm-hmm. and I think up to seven. And then the following week, it got you to 10 minutes and then the 15 minutes and then ultimately 20 minutes. But I remember when I first started out, five minutes was difficult. I couldn't stay still for five minutes, but that's the mm-hmm. point. That's the idea is that you can't stay mm-hmm. still for five minutes. Well, there's something wrong with you. Like you need to f- figure that out. That's how it is. Yeah. You got, you have to start off slow. You know, I've gotten into, uh, Kundalini yoga, which is even another level. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really course, difficult. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of breathing, a lot of breath work, a lot of mantra. Um, but it's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, you don't want to go back once you start, you know, reaching new levels of, uh, I don't know, self awareness. Well, it's really like a psychedelic yoga, isn't it? I mean, I feel like I had my first psychedelic experience with Kundalini. <laughs> Kundalini yoga and of course in LA, (laughs) but I mean, (laughs) but it's very strong. It's really interesting. It is. And you know, and we come from a world of show me or tell me or teach me the hardest thing to do to make me the the best version of myself. And so Mm -hmm. uh, what we've found out is, you know, Kundalini yoga is one of those things that it's not for everybody. It's difficult, Mm -hmm. but the rewards are, you know, priceless. And then are you guys doing this together or just Marcus? <laughs> We have done a little bit. Amber has her own ways of feeling. Oh, okay. Amber, what are you doing? I'm just curious. To rewind way back, even before Marcus's experience, I went through my own healing experience over the course of probably two to two and a half years. And, you know, I saw what Marcus was able to do in a much shorter time frame. And I think that just speaks to the power of psychedelics. I think that alternatively, you don't necessarily need psychedelics. We all have what we need to heal right on the inside, but psychedelics are basically like, um, you know, a rocket ship to the healing potential and can provide a lot of really great assistance in getting there. Um, since my own, you know, dark night of the soul, if you will, where you really have to descend, 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 and then hit rock bottom and start your journey back up, that is done for me at least for now. And now I've moved into a daily maintenance, a daily practice. And so Marcus does the same thing. I think that many couples have the misconception that you have to be exactly alike. Um, we, in many ways, could not be more different, but we complement each other very well. And so what works for me doesn't work for Marcus. And what works for Marcus doesn't work for me. And instead of trying to change one another, we've basically learned to honor one another, um, even though... You know, I don't do kundalini yoga. I've tried it with him once. I liked it, but where he needs to downregulate, I find more energy and benefit in like upregulating. So I, every day I start with quiet time, coffee, gratitude journal, prayer journal, Bible, scripture, whatever that looks like, oh. you know, for me is like very um, much my time in the morning and unapologetic. I work weights, everything weights. That's number one. And then I work out. And so for me, it's um, a lot of spin class, a lot of like biking and loud music. And um, for Marcus, he's in the next room, literally meditating, burning incense, getting really quiet while I'm getting really amped up. And so, yeah, and that's kind of what our relationship is. It's like a yin yang in many ways. CrossFit and meditation. CrossFit versus meditation. <laughs> well, I have stopped doing CrossFit. We used to do CrossFit and we did do that together. And then we realized like uh, CrossFit is basically like just 
a, a workout for our ego. And we definitely yeah. don't need that. Thank you for being on the show. It was amazing. I mean, I have so much more questions and you guys have to come back for a second round or for maybe a live YouTube thing that we're just planning. So thank you so much. I know you have a very busy schedule these days. Thank you, Anne. This has been so great. Yeah, this is wonderful. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the New Health Club show and please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or if you would like to sign up for our newsletter, please go to www.thenewhealthclub.de and subscribe to the newsletter. Again, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Clubhouse, of course, there's also a New Health Club now, or even better, sign up to our newsletter on thenewhealthclub.de. I talk to you very soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 